Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon. Hey everyone, it's Praising Kane, and I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell. And with me, as always, is my co-host and white man burden, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's life right now? Liam, at the time that this episode comes out, it will be deep into December, and I can only hope that things are going well for all, that we're all uh, appreciating the fact that we're spending time indoors, and it's getting a little colder outside, and it's all cozy. And I also hope that wherever you live, if you're in North America, that you are locking down pretty significantly to uh, to try to get through, you know, what will uh, be probably a, a difficult uh, Christmas or holiday season. Yeah, I mean, we're recording today is the day after American Thanksgiving, which I believe in Canada they refer to as Thursday. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, we had our Thanksgiving well in advance, Liam, and we did pretty well, I thought. I was really hoping, really hoping, uh, when I first learned about uh, the evils of Thanksgiving, that Canada would have freed themselves from such colonial trappings. But the idea that you just do it on a different day is actually <laughs> very fitting for the real relationship between the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. And believe me, when it comes to treatment of indigenous people, we're right up there with you as being the most horrible people on the planet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look... Uh, it's locked down. It should be locked down at least. Um, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, uh, things have gotten a little less dire. But at this exact moment, things look really dire here in the U.S. Um, people are not listening. Uh, uh, flights nationwide have only been down 13%. <laughs> That's not good, y'all. That's it, They should kinda, be down 100%, actually. It's in our minds, too, right? Because Thanksgiving for the U.S. was yesterday. and Yeah, yeah. I know. It's become a political issue as all these things often do that one one group cares about other people i mean i don't want to simplify it like that but like cares about you know spreading a horrible potentially fatal disease to other people and the other people are like no i don't care about that i i think that um we've gotten to the point where always 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 ideology allows us to ignore um certain facts and that's mm -hmm. true wherever we're at however on one particular side of the political spectrum that inclination has gotten to ridiculous effects so let's take let's take a fact that is you know kind of hard for everyone to swallow which is that um it would cost less money for every city in america to pay for homeless folks to be indoors, to pay for their living, to give them money for free to live off of, it would cost less money than what it ends up costing the city in emergency services and Absolutely. police care. Every, they're, they're, all across and, the That's United an States. indisputable fact. I mean, the numbers are right there. You can it's, absolutely it's, quantify that. And we all know it, and yet I would not say that's a Republican thing. That's liberals, you know, uh, let's say Dems and Republicans uh, tend to agree that they shouldn't do that for some weird yep. moral reason. Mm -hmm. So that's like one thing. But Republicans have taken that tendency to ignore facts that are uncomfortable that go against your ideology and pushed it to like it's fake. Like as if we we're all sitting around like the Democrats, one of the least organized political organizations in the world, <laughs> uh, has somehow found a way to fake 275,000 dead people. We have those resources to just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we just made up, uh, you know, a quarter of a million people uh, and then we killed them off, but they're not real because there's no coronavirus. Like, there's no rational explanation for all those dead folks other than something is going wrong. And the most obvious thing that seems to be going wrong is this virus. But instead, folks are like dying. Like they're dying of the virus saying, I don't believe in the virus as they die. Yeah, it, it is the most depressing uh, articles to read. These these yes. you know these testimonials from nurses and doctors who are there with people who are <laughs> completely unwilling to believe that they're dying of the thing that they're dying of. It is you know we make that we, we make the joke that it's brain worms, right? That that it kind of is, is this insidious thing that when you start believing it and you start going down those rabbit holes and um, that that it becomes impossible to disconnect yourself. But to the point of death. You know, you would think that that at some point 
you wouldn't be saying praise Donald Trump while you're dying on a deathbed that he caused you to be on. So something that's more cheerful than the horrors of the uh, pandemic that we're living in is that uh, recently Carol Kane did an interview with the Huffington Post. Doug, did you get a chance to check out this interview? I did. You know what? This is exactly the kind of interview I like, where, where it's very conversational, yep. where the uh, subject seems very engaged with it. Um, it these these kind of interviews are actually getting a little bit more common simply because there's a lot of interviews that happen on podcasts and people tend to be a little bit more relaxed. I don't know if that'll change as uh, as as they become more part of the uh, advertising scheme of releasing films and TV. But right now, you know, uh, an actress like Cal Kane seems like she's able to meet on a personal level with this interviewer and there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And it's sort of career spanning as well, which is nice. Yeah. One of the things that she talks about, which I think is interesting, is the way that her career kind of switched. And we, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but we've talked about it sort of as one of the reasons we're doing the podcast is this idea that her career has spanned from very dramatic work to uh, stuff that's you know more comedic in nature. Doug, what did you think of, of uh, this section of the interview where she's talking about how that experience was? It's interesting because we haven't reached it yet, but it's also interesting right. because when we first started this podcast... It's the more eccentric roles that defined who Cal Kane was to me. And we haven't reached that point, as you mentioned, right? At this point, there isn't really anything eccentric about these roles that we've covered at all. Uh, they're very much very dramatic and very serious. Um, and we're still probably, you know, a, a few years away. And obviously, she's already been lauded for her skills because she, we've already passed by an Academy Award-nominated performance. But the way that that is supposed to lead into a bigger career is not at this point happened and the way that she is going to kind of find mainstream fame doesn't seem like it's launched off of that award nomination at all. It comes from an entirely different place. So it's going to be really interesting. I think over the next five or six movies, as we head into 1980 uh, to see where her career kind of switches, where that kind of uh, pivot point happens and where, if we can like notice kind of a, a moment where she's kind of still stuck in the old Carol Kane before the roles start to turn into the new Carol Kane. Yeah, I, I found that aspect of the interview really interesting. And um, there's a moment where she talks about this feeling of, uh, well, she doesn't use the phrase, but we would call it uh, imposter syndrome Yeah. Uh, after she got the Oscar nom and how that kept her from taking certain kinds of roles. And I found that so moving. And I think if, if anyone out there, um, you know, obviously you're listening to this because you care about Carol Kane, but if you had that experience, it, it was just such an interesting moment of like identifying with her and seeing the ways that it was probably hard for her to get that attention so unexpectedly so quickly that it wasn't this feeling of like, finally I'm getting my due because it had been so soon, you know? Um, so I just, I, you know, I thought that was an interesting aspect of the article and it was a really endearing conversation and to hear her perspective on her career, um, helps me think about it myself, you know. So I mean, she has some real insight into it, right? Of right. course, she was in the center of it, but I think she, since she has had a lengthy and very successful career, it must be very interesting to go back and and recognize that there was this early success that led to her uh, not not understanding or not not maybe understanding is not the right word, not being able to fully appreciate the fact that her uh, the expectations of her had changed so much as an actress that when you right. are the you know quote unquote lead of a Oscar nominated movie and you're nominated for that performance then you're supposed to do certain things but if you're an actress that up to that point had never made a movie that uh that that you were in for more than a few minutes unless it was a small Canadian drama then it must have been completely like her entire life must have changed for a moment and you can just imagine how overwhelming that must have been for an actress who at that point was was kind of playing very specific kinds of roles. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I recommend people check it out. It's on Huffington Post. We'll um, put it in the show notes as well so you can check yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this episode we're talking about Dog Day Afternoon and uh not only did we obviously watch that movie, but uh we decided to check out 2013's The Dog. Uh, for those of you who don't know, The Dog is a documentary that was, from what I understand, 10 years in the making. Yeah. Um, it's actually kind of intense at the end uh you re you find out how many subjects of the film did not make it to see the film uh that they passed away during the making of the film so the dog is about is a documentary um about the life of john washtowich uh who is the real life 
person the film Dog Day Afternoon is is based upon. And uh, the documentary The Dog documents not just uh, his life, but then the effects of that film upon his life uh, after he is arrested, what his life is like as he's coming out of prison, how he adjusts to that fame. Uh, I found it a really interesting documentary. Uh, I was wondering for you, Doug, did this at all affect the way that you thought about the movie we're going to be discussing today? I mean, of course it, it would, right? It, it really does kind of um, change the perspective around. The movies are, are, like Dog Day Afternoon is not meant to be a documentary. It's about not a lot all, of yeah. things outside of this man and what, what he did and uh, and the events of his life before and afterwards. But it does contextually it is more about like the process of adapting a story and what the the things that you have to change in adapting these story stories and about the uh like you said the effect that a famous story put into the world has upon its subject when its subject isn't al pacino when it's a real person with a three-dimensional life who did a lot of really strange and interesting and unique things throughout his life and the thing that makes the dog such a fascinating viewing is is John is as the man at its core who is this blowhard kind of an asshole. I mean, let's, let's be, let's be honest about it. He's an asshole, but also an extremely engaging person who led a fascinating life. Um, and we, I mean, I don't want to give too much away about it, but like you said, because of the length of time it took to make this documentary, you see a lot of changes in him as a person. Um, and, and, it, it, I wasn't expecting to feel as kind of melancholy uh, about the end of the documentary as I ended up feeling. When you see a man's entire life kind of encapsulated by a single moment or a single event in his life, that, that tends to define every event, oh, sorry, every action that he does afterwards. Uh, it's, it's kind of sad, but it's also really interesting to see how fame plays on someone's mind, uh, like, like, <laughs> like the character in The Dog. Yeah, and the way that he sort of took on the character even more so than who he was. That sort of the character, as he understood it in the movie, became more definitive for who he was as a person than his own kind of history was interesting, if also very sad. Yeah, um, troubling. I mean, like just to, to, because I think we should be a little bit more explicit about it. Uh, this is a documentary that uh, I knew existed, but I probably kind of forgot until you brought it up to me, Liam. And you recommended that I watch it after watching Dog Day Afternoon, which is 100% the right call, uh, because it will color your view of the movie in a certain respect uh, or certain respects. But uh, the fact that he embraced this persona to such an extent that he would go to the bank he robbed with a shirt saying, I robbed this bank. I mean, just these bravura type uh, actions uh, adjusted, you know, because that's what he was. That's all he was. I mean, he lived at home with his mother. He was living on social assistance after he got out of prison. He obviously was struggling in a lot of ways, but he had this level of fame that he basically held on to and embraced and, and promoted right up until his death. And I mean, it really is, um, it's sad in a way, but it's also, it's mostly sad, I think, to me, simply because his story before the actions that are documented in the movie is almost as interesting as the movie. Because, you know, he was part of this, it, it, this um, you know, post-Stonewall uh, gay rights activism uh part of of america that hasn't been documented as well as say the events of dog day afternoon that i thought was the most interesting part of the documentary yeah i think that as well and i think that the inclination of the film to focus more on this exciting event is not one that i think makes the film bad but it is frustrating when you watch a documentary to realize like how much more texture there was there mm -hmm. and the part of it that is for me that becomes sad is the idea that I wonder how much that film limited his imagination for himself after the fact. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it's pretty clear in the documentary that part of that had nothing to do with the film. It was also prison that traumatized him very badly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, uh, in fact, I feel like the movie doesn't spend enough time on that particular aspect. I mean, there's, right. you know, they, they talk about the kind of his um, prison and I guess post prison wife uh that he uh, that's what they call it in the movie that he has in the the movie and that uh they were uh knowledgeable about the law and helped him kind of get his sentence reduced and things like that but 
you know, there is a suggestion, certainly, if, if not outright stated, that his time in prison was absolutely horrific, that he was in solitary for almost the entirety of it. And, I mean, that can't help but change a person's mindset. Right. Um, so I think there are ways that the documentary informs our discussion of this film in helpful ways. But I think it's worth acknowledging the film ahead of time and saying that I do think watching Dog Day Afternoon first makes more sense. Because yeah. I think that movie stands on its own and, and our discussion is going to be more of that movie. But I do think knowing the facts in a way that you can from this documentary, it does color a couple things about the movie that I think could have been a little better, but we'll get to that during our discussion. I mean, but, it's and, really, I think there's kind of one real major point where it right, diverges exactly. that I know that you have a lot of trouble with, and we're going to be kind of really careful when we discuss it. Uh, but it's, I, I do think that the dog, I don't think it's a perfect documentary. I do think it's very interesting, particularly when paired with Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, and it's available to watch if you're in the U.S. on Tubi. So we'll we'll link that in the show notes as well if anyone's interested. Yeah, it's just like more, especially for someone who loves this movie, this might be more uh, texture to your experience of it as well. So, 100%. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. We're entertainment, right? What do you what do you what do you got for us? Attica! Attica! I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. Remember Attica! They're coming in the back. I'm here with my partner and nine other people. See, we're dying. Don't don't stop! You're going to see our brains on a sidewalk. They're going to spill our guts out. Shouldn't let something like that spoil your fun. Hey, don't fire! Don't fire, don't fire. I can't stand you being a bankrupt, Sonny. What I'm talking, I'm trying to talk to you. Mom, what are you doing down God. here? Run, run, run. Where am I going to run? Algeria. Algeria? Yeah, they got to have a Johnson's there, so I'm going. One. We get a helicopter here. Two. Takes us to a jet. Three. I'm flying to the tropics. We did it. Al Pacino. Dog Day Afternoon, a true story. Three amateur bank robbers plan to hold up a bank. A nice simple robbery. Walk in, take the money, and run. Unfortunately, the supposedly uncomplicated heist suddenly becomes a bizarre nightmare, as everything that could go wrong does. It's 1975's Dog Day Afternoon, directed by uh, Sidney Lumet, who you may know from Serpico, 12 Angry Men, Network, that's a really good list, actually. That's like yeah. that's that's pretty 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 solid, <laughs> right there. Uh, written by Frank Pearson, who also uh, wrote Cool Hand Luke, Presumed Innocent, uh, and was director of King of the Gypsies. Wow, that's a familiar film. How do we know? About you that are film? definitely reading that for the first time. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> he helped bring Eric Roberts into the world. Yeah, I appreciate that, and that's like we owe him. Uh, a, a blood debt in two directions on that one. So. You know, he also was a producer on Mad Men, uh, I guess, and helped, you know, kind of um, craft that into being more accurate about its time period. So Frank That's Pearson's still out there. Still yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this film obviously stars Al Pacino. Let's people know this is one of his more memorable roles, and he's on the poster. His face, his eyes, basically. Um, <laughs> also stars John Cazale, uh, who you may know also. Uh, with Al Pacino, The Godfather, as Fredo, uh, Charles Durning, James Broderick, Lance Henriksen, uh, and of course, the immortal Carol Kane. But before we get too much into the various performances here and how this is probably, for me, the Al Pacino role, actually, <laughs> uh, I want to hear from Doug. Doug, what do you think of Dog Day Afternoon? I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's it's one of the great movies of the 1970s, and Al Pacino is unbelievable in it. I think he's better here than he is in The Godfather, which is not taking anything away from The Godfather films. It's just that he is, has so much nervous energy. You know, it's interesting that this, this became sort of the one of the prototypical and defining Al Pacino roles because he's not as Al Pacino-like in this as as you might expect if you have only heard about Dog Day Afternoon, or if you've only seen the clip of him yelling Attica or whatever, right? That, he, you know, he really is sort of very low-key at first. It isn't just him being bombastic and screaming at everybody. I mean, it, there's elements of that in this movie as well. But it's a really fully formed, rounded performance, and he's so sweaty, and he's so jittery, but he's even kind of, like, altered his speaking patterns a little bit. I mean, really an amazing performance. But it's it's not just an Al Pacino movie. 
You know, there's a lot of great performances in this movie. Uh, Charles Durning, by the way, is terrific as the cop outside uh, who is, is like not ma- maybe he's not great in this sort of hostage situation, but he's trying, but he's still a cop. And I just really love those interactions, especially knowing that they're partially improvised and you can f- tell that the actors are kind of like really immediately responding to one another. I mean, it's just an impeccably made and designed movie. The fact that it 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 is based on a real incident and actually is fairly um, accurate to the incident, surprisingly so. I think, uh, considering the the nature of of how kind of bizarre some of these actions are, it's kind of strange to go back and think about this movie in retrospect after having watched The Dog. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that because that's not what we're here to talk about, but. One of the things that they mention at the end of that documentary is the fact that, you know, the the Sonny character, the Al Pacino character, is is kind of made into a counterculture hero in this movie. And rightfully so. He, you know, he his motivations, I think, are, are supposed to be somewhat uh, uh, respectable and likable. The, the, the outcome of it is completely unforeseen. He's not out to hurt anybody necessarily. And no one really gets hurt outside of the Salvatore character in this movie. But... The way that that happens, where he gets shot in the head and it happens at this last minute at the, as they're sitting on this airport tarmac, that's how it happened in real life. And the people who saw that, all these hostages, must have been absolutely horribly traumatized by that, which is something in the documentary, like, he doesn't give a shit about that. There's a part where he's, like, outside the bank and one of the hostages are there, and it's like, they went through hell. I mean, look, it's not fun. It's it's kind of presented as maybe being a little lighter than it maybe was in real life in the uh, in in the Sydney Lumet film. But it's like he, you know, it's it's a real. I walk a little bit of a line when it comes to the Al Pacino character in this because he is doing something that is a response to um, the position that the United States, that the world, that culture has put him in at that time period. But the real-life person maybe wasn't as honorable as the Sonny character in Dog Day Afternoon. Well, it's interesting, right? Because, uh, again, we don't want to focus too much on the dog. But um, the way it plays off in the movie, for me, is this idea that um, he has one insight, political insight at all, which is that if the cops had their way, they would just shoot him and be done with it. Yes. That that would make their lives easier. A not inaccurate insight, by the way. Right. And that then... And, and that is informed by a real political event that had a lot of weight for people, which was uh, Attica, right? And that's why he keeps bringing it up. And in the film, it comes across like, yeah, he has some idea of injustice or whatever, but it's all he falls into it. He didn't do this thing because of Attica. He just brings up Attica as a way to rile things up because he's so really horrified at... Um, uh, how obvious it is that the police would just want to shoot him. That if if they thought they could get away with it, they would just shoot him automatically. Mm-hmm. It's it, it is really true, and he, and he keeps saying in the film, like without these hostages, I'm dead. I am yeah. dead. The the in the context of the time, it was very popular public opinion that you know there isn't a lot of compassion for. Uh, prisoners uh, for convicted criminals. You know what I mean? Like that, that the idea that we should at least want these people to be treated humanely was actually kind of a countercultural idea. And so sure. this mm-hmm. film and focusing on the very murderous intentions of these police officers uh, is in a sense political, even if the character that he's playing is not maybe a, a very political person. On the other hand, we learn from the dog that the actual dude <laughs> was himself actually a political organizer. He just wasn't a political organizer around prison issues or police violence. He was a political organizer around LGBTQ rights. Uh, now, granted, I don't think he robbed this bank because of that. They're sort of separate things. But he was very involved in politics and action and you know, was very much uh, an activist in a real way. His activism is kind of interesting um, when you watch the documentary because it's when he describes it, he doesn't seem to describe it as someone who's really engaged with the moment politically and things like that. I mean, it's almost like it was again, I don't want to discount the fact that he was taking a big risk in everything that he was doing, especially as a ex-soldier. Right. I mean, there's just a lot that he did that was performative, but also incredibly important. But 
but he doesn't talk about it like, look how we're doing this revolutionary thing. A lot of it for him is he was just a really sexual dude who really wanted to have sex with a lot of guys. And this was a, you know, a place where everyone congregated. And it seemed like the political movement for him kind of evolved out of that. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think for him, he he got more involved as he saw the negative effects that there was backlash against their community and they weren't being protected that that he was really motivated i don't want to say by self-interest but he didn't have like a big agenda but he is a lot more in that way engaged than the character in the movie but then the character in the movie becomes a a political figure because of this violent stuff um and and i do want to circle back a little bit to for me uh this is one of my favorite Al Pacino performances, perhaps because it doesn't have some of the caricatures that we've begun yeah. to associate mm-hmm. with Al Pacino. That the hoa sort of of Al Pacino isn't there. Which, by the way, uh, you know, the performances of in his career where maybe he started to develop some of those things that we associate with him are often not my favorite Al Pacino performances. But this movie, so much more of him comes across in that quiet anxiety bursting forth into loud anxiety so he's not just yelling the whole time right but you can see under the surface he's anxious he he thinks he's in control he's trying to keep control he has thought about this to some extent but he's not maybe the smartest and he is very emotional so he can get riled up very quickly i just love it it's just so magnetic and to me it doesn't feel like you know I, i'm not trying to be a jerk because you know al pacino's had a long and interesting career but I think we can all identify times when it feels like Al Pacino watched an Al Pacino movie and is doing his impression of himself. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I think it naturally happens with actors who have long careers right, that you start right. to lean on. I mean, it happens Marlon Brando, it happened to Jack Nicholson. I mean, just naturally you you lean on the things that people expect and want from you, especially because I imagine directors are like, do that thing that you did, you know, sure, that we right. saw you do. But yeah, this is this is a very different Al Pacino than you saw in Scent of a Woman or basically any role in the last decade. <laughs> yeah, but I love that about it. And for me, it, it feels more essentially him because of that, because I feel yeah. like he is trying to embody this character, but with himself, with a lot of stuff that feels like him. So for me, this is like, Holy shit, it's, he's amazing in the movie. And that's not to downplay the other performances, like you said, Charles Durning, but you know, uh, a few of the people in this I think are really compelling, even if they're only there for a little bit. Like I, I think one of the less uh, praise, less easily praised roles are these bank tellers, right? Absolutely. Like, they have to be believably scared, but also like human. You know, so you put your guard down, you play cards, you watch TV because you've been there for hours and you're not going to cry the whole time. Most people are once once you get to a certain point, you're going to relax a little bit, but you're also kind of still mad at these guys because you're they're literally using you as a human shield. So it's like this weird relationship. And it's such the, an amazing kind of balancing act. Yes. that This movie plays. Right. And it, it probably doesn't reflect reality entirely. But just this idea that these are these, you know. People threatening your life, like literally threatening your life, even still, you know, well into the movie, there's at least one of them where, uh, as Al Pacino's outside, the John Cazale character, they're like, if if something happens to Sonny, he's going to kill all the hostages. Like, that's still a threat right up until the end of the movie. But you also have to believe that they create a connection with these two bank robbers to the point where there's some sympathy there, that there's some empathy there, that that uh, when Al Pacino brings one of the hostages outside and something happens, that she's like, hey, like, leave him alone, right? Just let him do this and get this over with so we can all get going. And that's not built out of we want to be free, we want to be out of the situation, as much as this guy has a sympathetic nature to him. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's a feeling... I again, I'm not saying this is a, a a blatantly political film, right? But I think this does the thing that a lot of movies from this period that deal with uh, uh, things like politics do, which is like um, these are endearing characters in a system that they're trying to, you know, figure out how to operate in. And so for these hostages, they don't trust these police that much more than they trust their hostage takers. Absolutely. For good reason. Like, there's thousands of these cops there with their guns drawn like the whole time, and they really don't seem that concerned about what's going to happen to these hostages. Uh, You know, obviously, Charles Durning's character as the head guy, like, he, he, he prioritizes that. But it really sometimes feels like he's 
he's ruling a, a, a mob. You know, absolutely. What I mean? like that he's just game. barely in control of, right? I yeah. mean, there's the, when the shot goes out late into uh, like maybe the midway mark of the movie. You know, he's like, who, who shot? Who shot? Like, he he has to keep telling his his police officers to put their guns down. Now that could also be part of the negotiation, right? Where it's just like, look at me, I'm a friend of yours. I'm going to make these cops put their guns down. I, I maybe look, you can hear it coming out in my voice, Liam. I don't trust cops, even the ones that are supposed yeah, to be your sure, friend. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but but it's just like you're right. He just seems barely in control of this mob of police who have hundreds of guns all pointed at this one guy. So how could you not sympathize with the guy, well, right, who has such a power imbalance here? Well, and I think that the issue, too, with that, that you sort of pointed out is it doesn't really matter if you trust him. Or, like, what's at stake here is two things. One, you can't trust him because he's going to do whatever he can to get out of the situation. Right. So it's not like you can believe what he's telling you, per se. On the other hand, you can't trust him because that doesn't mean he, have con- he has control. Like, it's in his best interest because he doesn't want these people killed and i won't even say because he's a humanitarian he doesn't want them killed because it'd be very bad for the city if (laughs) these people ended up dead so he (laughs) wants them alive so it's in his interest and the interest of the wider police department for these police officers to be under control that doesn't mean they will be so you have on one hand you can't trust them because they're going to manipulate you however they can to get what they want but also they don't have the sort of discipline and control of these random hooligans they've given badges and guns to to know that none of them will just <laughs> shoot for no reason, which would be terrible for them. You know what I mean? So this is and this is the issue of dealing with police all the time. It is both corruption and incompetence, right? And mm-hmm. that those are connected and separate. So, like, you could get killed because someone is bad. You could get killed because someone is bad at their job. And you could get killed because someone is bad and wants to cover up that they're bad at their job. And And it's empowered, of course, by the fact that there's no consequences for a lot of these actions. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, this Charles Durning will probably lose his job if one of these uh, uh, hostages eats a bullet. You know, that he'll he'll probably get in trouble. But the random cops on the street, come on, nothing's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) What is good? They might maybe they'll get uh, suspension. Whatever you know, like <clears throat> the PR disaster for the people in charge is the only real consequence, right. and even that will go away over time. So, uh, and I think this movie again, uh, it's not a message film per se, but I think it does a really good job of tapping into the politics of the day. In that, right. um, these aren't hippies. These aren't counter. Uh, or these aren't revolutionaries. They're not like super leftists. It's just a situation in which the politics boil out and the public is both... You get the feeling that the crowd who's cheering for uh, uh, Al Pacino's character, they would be also satisfied if he got killed, even Absolutely. though they would say they were mad about it. They're yeah, this there. is a movie about mobs, both good and bad, yes. right? I mean, yes. when, the, when they're praising him and they're, like, getting all riled up when he's yelling Attica, you're like, wow, yeah, look, this mob, they recognize that he's this kind of figure that is representative of the what's going on in the culture war, say, so to speak. But then later, when they find out that he's homosexual, they mock him mercilessly. They Yeah, and, and that's, again, accurate to real life. That that when 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 it came out who he was, and especially there's a moment uh, in the dog when one of his boyfriends, who isn't his wife, comes to see him and they kiss. The crowd like lost it in real life. So yeah, you know they they're willing to cheer for him when it means hating cops, and they're willing to boo him when it means that uh, he's different from them. So uh, speaking of that, I think it'd be a good time to talk a little bit about the portrayal of Leon or uh, otherwise known as Liz Eden. Uh, This is one of the sticky moments of the film, Doug, and I was wondering, let's just talk about the performance first before we get into the complications. What did you think of the performance of Leon? So Chris Sarandon plays Leon in the film, who is a... I I, want to make sure I get the language of this right. This person is living their life as a woman, however... Recently, the Chris Sarandon character, Leon, has uh, tried to commit suicide, just coming out of a hospital and very much in a haze in the context of the movie. And I think, by the way, that Chris Sarandon plays that very well as someone who's confused and concerned, already has a very complex relationship with the Sonny character uh, who has been violent towards her, that has been very difficult. And and, and the Leon character is someone who, uh, you know, is troubled in a lot of different ways. So I like the kind of progression. I like the fact that they have their conversation and it, it really doesn't provide any of the closure that either of, the, either of them are really hoping for. 
But I know that what your concern is here, and it's a, a reasonable concern, is the presentation of this character who is just shown as a fairly effeminate man as opposed to a someone who's living their life as a woman. Yeah, who is a woman? Like that's is a, yeah, is, yeah, you know what? Let me tr- let me make that very clear. Is a woman, but yeah. not presented as such in the movie. In the real life that this is based on, was was a, a, a was a woman was living their life as a woman and just hadn't had their operation yet. Yeah, well, and do, doesn't need it, right? Like the the part of the argument with trans is that. Uh, with trans folks is that they don't think it's your business to know what's going on with their genitalia. Yes. That, uh, that trans women are women regardless of what state their bodies are in, you know? So even if they are not presenting very femme at all, whatever. But th- to me... I think there's this- a little confusion if whether that that Leon was 100% always presenting as a woman and if they would right. have recognized themselves in that. But these are, you know, again, this is a... Well, this is a time where there wasn't as That's much right. politics. That's right. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. People hadn't really discussed a lot of this. And it was controversial. And all you need to de- do is study the history of people like Marsha P. Johnson um, to know that uh, even in the you know gay rights movement that grew out of Stonewall, the trans folks, that was controversial. That they weren't welcomed by the very people they were fighting for a lot of times. I mean, an issue that continues, obviously, to this very day. Yeah, yeah. And so there's there's a lot of uh, of learning that we've done over time around gender. And, you know, I don't want to say I want to hold these hold this movie to a 2020 thing. But it, it is telling to me in the documentary that in real life, Liz, who in this movie is, you know, going by the, the their dead name, Leon. Yes. Um, Liz in real life never came down there. That, in fact, the only person who came down there was, as we said, the dog had a lot of lovers, had now two wives, but also had other people. And a uh, a young man came down to see him, and they kissed uh, at the bank, and that was sort of the you know one of the big reveals of of him being, um, let's say, not heterosexual. He identifies as gay uh, in in uh, the documentary. Um, it is pretty clear that uh, he you know, enjoy sex with a lot of different folks of various gender identities yeah, uh, in yeah. his history. So I don't think it's worth, personally, he's queer. I don't care. He can make love to whoever he wants to make love to. doesn't matter to me. But what's interesting in the film is that Chris Sarandon looks exactly like this man, cis gay man who came down there. They cast Chris Sarandon to look like this man. But that's yeah. not the person he was doing this for. Because when they got married, there were people at the wedding who didn't know that Liz was not born Liz. There were and, people. There were police officers uh, across the street as they came out who thought it was a, a, a yeah that didn't a realize cis. That this was, they they, yeah. they thought that that was just a normal uh, cis heterosexual thing in the seventies when you know whatever. So uh, the reason I I care about this per se is a you know just the obvious thing that throughout history when there has been trans erasure we should care about that because it didn't have to be that way and especially in a film based on a character who was involved in that community it wouldn't have been that hard to you know uh find a way for this to be more realistic but the other part about it is um there's some uh issue right between liz and between uh john uh or you know he's going sunny in the movie um about the issue of the operation and in the film, it's presented like a mental health issue where, you know, there's something that Sonny wants or, or doesn't want to have happen. And maybe Leon wants it because Leon is presented as so discombobulated and dealing with his mental health issue that maybe Leon wants it and it's not okay, right? But um, in real life, this conflict was a way more problematic and possibly violent you know Mm -hmm. and b um liz was living as a woman so her decision to take that further and to uh get bottom surgery is not just uh uh you know her choice to make for herself regardless of what uh uh the dog thinks but also um it was part of an obvious so in other words i I feel like the film plays off of the cis 
prejudices of its audience to make this seem more scandalous you know to make this seem more why would he why why would leon want this like look you know leon has uh this person who loves them you know why would leon you know whatever whatever because we're seeing leon we're seeing chris sarandon in by the way a magical performance. Like I actually think he's very good. And the only part about that scene that bums me out in and of itself is the idea that all these police officers respectfully listen to his tale. Yeah, it, it's really this moment where the camera focuses in and everyone's quiet and they're all looking at him and kind of moved by him. And I'm like, that would never happen. <laughs> I mean, they did but, show like the tittering earlier of the police. Sure, but first... once he starts sharing, they're all moved. Uh, uh, look, I feel really I, I want to make it really clear that we are saying he in this case simply because, because of, of how it's presented in the movie. Exactly. Exactly. That in, in that this is obviously in real life a she, and that's how we would. Uh, that's the pronoun that we use. The, the, the only the only difficulty I have with what you're saying, Liam, is the fact that in the context of the movie, they have pulled. Leon out of a hospital, so th- where they ostensibly have been heavily sedated the entire time, and probably that you know it, they Leon could have been pre- presenting female when they went into the hospital, but that's all been stripped away from them, right? And that in the case, and now again, this does not reflect something that happened in reality, but it's it does seem kind of realistic that uh, this hospital that's already seeing this as a mental illness that they would basically remove anything that was feminine about this person and the cops pull them out of this hospital that they would seem male presenting at that time. See, I don't, A, I don't buy it because, and again, we don't know, but from the photo evidence, I'm not convinced that uh, Liz wasn't already on hormones. Mm -hmm. So I think there would have already been physical changes that would be obvious and hard to... Though though the character in this movie is is like in a bathrobe the entire time. I mean, it'd be hard to, to necessarily see those changes. Right. And, 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 but, but I also think the, the point that I'm making is related to the, what you're sort of saying sideways here, which is like, well, they, you know, they had to make this scene up and I'm like, that's exactly the point. They made this scene up to make a point. Right. Why not do anything? Cast, Cast a cis woman if you want. Lots of people mm-hmm. do that. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, in, in fact, that's one of the criticisms from trans activists about casting. If yeah. you're not going to cast trans actors, at least cast the cis version of their gender. Why yeah. keep casting cis, often hetero male uh, people as trans women? It is suggesting that at heart, trans folks are actually confused cis men. They, that you're not saying that obviously, but that's sort of subtly what you're saying is that that that's the best represent. Jared Leto is the best representation of what you really are. Whereas if you would cast a woman again, yeah, I'd prefer you to cast a trans actress. Obviously, that was less available at this time, and it's not worth saying. But I just mean. To me, the extension of this issue is you've made this story up from whole cloth. This didn't right. happen. So it's it's a dramatic done, element as opposed to a representation of reality. You could have done anything. And it bums me out that the way it's presented, to me, in my opinion, critically, plays off a more of a mental health thing. And it sort of makes it like it makes Sonny's desire to uh, – it, it casts it in two ways. One, that Sonny's discomfort – about this possibility of the surgery is relatable. Whereas in real life, I think it's fucked. It's like, you know, it, it makes dog more uh, endearing, right? And then it makes sure. it even more endearing because he gets over his understandable frustration in order to pay for it, which in real life, you know, it seems like maybe there were other things going on when he robbed sure. the spank. Uh-huh. And in fact, straight up was thinking he might murder his wife if they did get a plane to Denmark. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think, again, it, it, you're right. Within the context of the movie, it's fine. And it's it, as far as the quality of the scene, it's magical. But I think the, the, the politics that caused this scene to be created come across as compassionate, but it's the kind of compassion that still affirms some of the worst assumptions of... Right cishet people like me you know that i could watch it and go oh man oh yeah totally and in reality the more complicated part of it would be more to me illustrative of the character especially since i think the movie does better when we are feeling mixed about sunny and not like he's a fucking hero because i think when it valorizes him too much the movie flirts with missing the thread 
I, I, I think that's very fair. I also think that this movie, in a lot of ways, is, and I, this, a lot has been written about this, has, is much more progressive towards LGBTQ um, yes, issues than, than most, and certainly most mainstream movies of that time period. The very fact, again, it's not great that you have a cis actor playing a gay character in the lead here either, and let's not forget that. But the fact that this character is asympathetic, that is not defined entirely by sexuality, that the movie doesn't even bring up his sexuality until well into it. I think there's right. actually something pretty, I mean, revolutionary might be too strong of a word, but very progressive about that in the sense that you are going into this movie, you're going to root for Al Pacino because he's the lead character because we're going to spend so much time with him. He's complex, but you're going to root for him. You're already rooting for him before you find out that he's something that as a viewer in the 1970s, you might feel uncomfortable with, that you might have really negative feelings about. Even today, watching it, there are people who have a lot of negative feelings about it. And this is, you know, a pretty uh, forward-thinking way of 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 kind of getting people to sympathize and empathize with someone that otherwise they would really be resistant to doing that thing. Now, I say that without, with the knowledge that people in the mid-70s, they might have already known this story since it was national news. It's kind of right. funny to think that it made so many headlines, but the the thing that people remember about it is the adaptation rather than the event for the most part. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think um, it's also worth noting that uh, whatever misconceptions this film brought about, by the time uh, the real-life dog gets out of prison, he's on so many talk shows with Liz <laughs> that who Liz is is suddenly out in public. Now, granted... Um, I still think Liz had a rough life and, yes. you know, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of trauma from from uh, her relations with uh, the real life John. But um, but still, I, I, I do think like as much as I'm concerned about the underlying biases that are, have kind of altered the way that this is presented, I, I think you're right. F- what it does accomplish for the time is pretty solid. And I think uh I think it's interesting because one of the things you could say about the the film is, you know, it, it never quite uh, interrogates his bisexuality that he has uh, a, a wife that he has children with, and then he has this other person and um, that this uh, trans woman that he loves, and then he also has uh, various men that he's been with. Like uh, the the movie just sort of lets it be what it is. And one of the things I loved about the dog is meeting the dog and realizing like him referring to himself as gay is sort of his way of identifying with that community. But when he describes his actual sexuality, he's just like, I like to get off, you know? So I get off with who I get off with. It's fine. And you're like, okay, well, you know, that part of the movie is actually, not that they get that explicit in Dog Day Afternoon, but it's a pretty accurate representation of who he was. And I think that is extremely An extremely unapologetic person. Uh, for better or for worse, and I do think that Al Pacino kind of captures that, which is like, this is you know this 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 doesn't define me. I'm a person. I'm a, a three dimensional person, but it is obviously a big part of my life as well. I just I really like how the movie kind of integrates it, uh, even if it isn't as tactful as probably uh, someone watching from 2020 would want. Yeah, and I, you know I get it. There are going to be people who be mad at me because they think I'm I'm being too PC or whatever. But I just think that moment. It's not just one where. It could have been better, but I think it plays into certain assumptions that we still have. So it's worth talking about it because I want to remind everyone that, like, you know, the 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 one of the worst things that happens is when people act like trans folks are pretending and we're just putting up with their pretending, and that's like fucked, you know. And that's that's how the movie comes across to me a little bit is like we want to be compassionate about it, but it's not real. And I'm like, it is real, you know. And and those early folks long before it was easy to do any of this. I mean, not that it's easy now, but it's certainly easier now than it was in 1970, whatever. Uh, You know, I want to lift up someone like Liz that had the bravery to try to do this thing when it was, you know, almost, it seemed almost impossible. You could literally be arrested for wearing women's clothing in public. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I, I don't want to, I want to give respect to that because it's so inspiring. Um, even as I know for the time, this is some pretty out there stuff that this is, this movie is really pushing people's boundaries. And I, you know, we've already talked about Al Pacino as a performer in this, and he really does do an amazing job, but also there probably was a pretty significant risk for him to be playing a gay character or or a pansexual character or however you would describe the character in this, in this movie. And it's, these are barriers that, that 
look probably less impressive in retrospect. But, uh, I mean, he really does do an amazing job here. Uh, one thing that you, you refer to, and I just want to kind of reinforce, is just the idea that I've seen fan, like film fans and film, uh, and people who are like really interested in cinema as a whole, they ruffle a little when trans people write or criticize things in retrospect. I've seen it all the time. You know, we see it in our circles when I've sure. seen uh, trans critics who have written about Sleepaway Camp and how the trans character is presented in that film, which I don't think is a uh, – that's a spoiler to anyone at this point. And I've seen both sides from trans critics uh, writing about that. But I've seen the responses to it just be the most vicious, hateful things because people have entrenched themselves, their view of something, and they are unwilling to see it from the perspective of someone who who's like, this is our lives that are being presented on screen we ha- we should have a say in this and that is i think the kind of at the core of what we're talking about these are this is a presentation by obviously well-meaning people who maybe still don't know enough about what they're writing about yeah totally i i again i don't think uh, anything i've said today makes this actually a bad movie and you know i still think it's a masterpiece i honestly yeah. do yeah and if, if that makes me a bad ally to anyone who's listening sorry about that but i, I still think it's a brilliant film i just feel like it could be a stronger film if they just did that part a little bit differently. And that's even taking into account Chris Sarandon's performance, which I think should be lifted up as ama- really amazing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, one of the things I, I did want to talk about before we wrap up here is uh, the ending of the film, which is, I think, um, kind of a... It's an interesting way to, to portray, like, even though this is what happened... It, it feels kind of like the most for me like action filmy the film gets sure. in the sense of like the the tension of it. How do you feel about the ending and how much do you love Lance Hendrickson? You see him pop up in kind of small roles in the 1970s before he kind of took hold in the 1980s and he's always a welcome um, welcome face and also a very memorable face and I mean that just because of how he actually looks. I think you you're right that it does get kind of action movie in the in the last act at that on that tarmac but it's also i kind of feel like it's when it gets the most anti-cop in the sense that yeah they are doing their jobs right they're trying to save and and these hostages and they're they're not going to let him get on this plane that's just never is really an option for them but it also feels like it could have been handled in a less brutal and traumatizing fashion a and B, you don't want him to really succeed at that point in the context right. of watching this movie, right? You you want these cops to fail and you want these guys who are just confused and scared and probably not dangerous outside of this particular case, but probably should, you know, <laughs> are still doing something that is traumatizing and hurting other people. Um, but you, you, don't, you don't want this to turn into this violent, horrible incident. And it, I think it's kind of reinforced after, after it goes down, after John Cazale is killed. And after they're arrested and you see Al Pacino just kind of like looking over the 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 crowd and the body of his friend and all of this. And it's just like it's you you feel deflated and very intentionally so by what has happened. But I don't think you walk away with this with positive feelings about, boy, those boys in blue really did their job getting this uh, nailed down at the, in the last few moments. It's it's also a very dark ending for a movie that, though it is serious, has some real uplift to it. Like, there's a lot of moments where you're kind of like, uh, maybe not entirely rooting for Sonny, but you're like so entertained by. Well, I mean, him. I think most of the people who watch this were were hard probably rooting. rooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and but, I, I don't even think that's necessarily a good thing. And you know, in terms of, uh, no. there's there you should feel conflicted. I think about it, just like some of the supporting characters feel conflict, conflicted about these characters, but. Let's face it. I mean, this is one one man basically against an army, and so of course you're going to be you're going to want to see yeah, that person succeed. It's it's hard not to, but I I think the ending is the only place where it suddenly like reality reasserts itself. You know what I mean? Right. And and it it almost feels like the movie as a fictionalized version of a true story wants to end with him getting away, <laughs> but it has to end with the reality, which is he's in prison and and uh, other dudes dead. That's it. They, they, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, we can't work around it, guys. It is what it is. So, I mean, the fact is, at. what it really reinforces is the moment that he walks into that bank, he's doomed, right? There's, oh, yeah. there's no way that he's getting out of this. Uh, it, it, he's not smart enough. He's not tactful enough. And when things go bad, they just got, have gone bad far enough. Like, we never find out how the cops find out that he's robbing that bank, 
right? We just know that something has gone wrong to the point. Maybe someone hit an alarm. Maybe someone saw what was going on and suspected something. Maybe the smoke that poured out when he was burning that book in the in the place. Maybe that tipped someone off. But we never know for sure. But by the time he realizes that he's fucked, he is totally fucked. And yeah. and yeah. as you said, he, he the only thing that keeps him alive at that point are those hostages. But even that isn't going to get him on a plane to a foreign country that's going to allow him to live free. It just reputation is what it's all about. As soon as you let someone do that, you know, I think they would rather blow up the fucking plane than allow that sort of thing to happen because of how the US views criminality and that sort of thing. So it's it's you know, it it I do think it kind of colors the movie in retrospect that this is a character that is headed towards his own self-destruction all the way through no matter how much he's pushing against it. Yeah, I agree. Uh let's uh finish up here by talking about Carol Kane who does not have a large role in this film but she is on screen and she does have some lines and she is on screen <laughs> i think it's memorable you know what i mean she's not she's not an extra she she has a role it's not uh completely insignificant um what did you think of carol kane in this film so carol kane carol kane plays one of the bank tellers jenny the squirrel uh in the right, movie right. uh based on a real person and uh the thing about carol kane is that you're always going to remember her from uh, for a movie because of a hey she has that look, and B, she has that voice. And th- you you will always recognize Carol Kane character because of those two things, and you certainly do in this movie. Again, it's just so strange to think that she's playing this small supporting role in this big movie at the same year that she's being nominated for an Academy Award, but that's just how these things go sometimes. Um, I do love that moment where she's on the phone with her boyfriend who asks... <laughs> Sonny, how long it's going to last because he wants her to come home, right? I mean, it's just, it just, it shows the level of naivete at the beginning, but also the fact that until that army appears outside in the TV cameras, people aren't taking this very seriously, right? Uh, and even within there, they're, they're not taking it fully seriously in regards to how much danger they may potentially actually be in. And I think that kind of lightness and, and, and light comedy in regards to that is really important to humanize these characters early on. Um, and we get to know like a few of the bank tellers as we go through. And I don't think that Carol Kane's one is the most notable out of all those because she's not as... Uh, involved with the action, uh, even the kind of the minor action, but it's still, you know, she's she's really she's really great in it. She's very believable, and I do think that she has that kind of small comedic tone to her performance that helps kind of reinforce the humanity of these characters. I agree. I uh, I think she stands out even as she doesn't have a lot to do, and it, it's, it was kind of fun to see her in the role, knowing the timing of it is so weird, you know, in her <laughs> actual professional life. So yeah, we when I'm watching it, it's kind of like she doesn't know what's coming. Like she doesn't she know. Has no idea. Yeah, right. This is this yeah. is Carol Kane as the actress that she. You were talking about the imposter syndrome. This is the actress that she thinks she is, while. In 10 years or five years, she'll be the actress that the world thinks she is. But right. it takes a while for those two things to meet in the mind of the person who has been thrust into a spotlight, right? Yeah, totally. So that was Dog Day Afternoon, 1975, Cindy Lumet. And we are very glad that you came and joined us. On our next episode, we will be covering Harry and Walter Go to New York, a film. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry about that, Doug. Liam's allergic to Harry and Walter go to New York. <laughs> <laughs> a film I've never seen, directed by Mark Rydell, starring James Caan, Elliot Gould, Michael Caine, Diane Keaton, uh, Charles Durning. Charles again. Durning back again, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Um, I, I'm excited for this. I don't know anything about it. I know nothing about it. I've, I haven't really heard anyone talk about this movie, but that cast is unbelievable. I mean, yeah. such a 70s cast. James Caan, Elliot Gould, Michael Caine. I mean, Diane Keaton. It's uh, I, I don't know really what to expect from it, but I'm really excited to uh, to check it out. Well, Doug, if people are excited to check out more of us, how could they do that? Well, they can go over to CinePunks.com and check out their array of wonderful podcasts. Our latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord is always available through there and publicized via, via the various social medias. CinePunks is on Facebook and Twitter. At CinePunks is usually what you need to search for. Uh, you can also find Cinema Smorgasbord on uh, the website CinemaSmorgasbord.com, which has uh, all of our previous episodes, all of our links to our various social medias. You can find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook as well. On Twitter, at CinemaSmorg, S-M-O-R-G. 
G, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. We have podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the uh, career of Jackie Chan, as Vic Diaz, the Filipino Peter Lorre, as, of course, Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, and others. Check us out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. And, Liam, I think you're on social media as well. I am. You can find me on Twitter at, at Liam Rules, and you can also find Doug uh, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L. E-Y. <laughs> Usually these roles are reversed where you're talking about the first part and I'm talking about the second part, but uh, but we're making it work here. <laughs> well, we just want to thank you all for joining us here on Praising Kane. We hope you'll join us back here again for not just this show, but the variety of shows we offer here at Simless Morris Board. But for now, we want to say good night. Good night. <laughs> Thank you.